KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Hey, hey, I'm Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project, a podcast that explores black culture as a lifestyle. In our latest episode, Dan Charnas pops in to talk about the city of Detroit. Even then, I remember when Mike Ross, the owner of Delicious Vinyl, said we knew that, that Jay Swift was leaving the far side, and Jay Swift was their incredible producer. And I was so concerned for the far side. Like, what's the far side going to do now that Jay Swift is gone? And Mike Ross said, oh, you know, no problem. You know, we got this kid from Detroit named JD, you know, who's coming in to produce. And I said, who? Detroit? You know, what? <laughs> The PE Project, available now. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. To hear the message header information, press 5. To delete, press 7. To save... Don't forget to tune in tonight to KPBS Television and watch Evening Edition with Maya Trabolsi, where she interviews Parker Edison, and he talks about the Parker Edison Project, a new podcast on KPBS. That's Evening Edition, tonight at 5 and 6.30. Don't sleep. To replay this message, press 1. To delete, press 7. I'm Dan Charnas, and you're listening you're to the P.E.P.E.P. Good morning. And welcome to Season 3 of the Parker Edison Project. If you've been following, you already know, the theme of this season is geopolitics. Location, location, location. Today, let's talk about Detroit. Central to America's growth, its geographic location gave it access to the Great Lakes. Its landscape was highly conducive to railways, which helped to foundate automobile manufacturers. Enter Henry Ford. His early blueprints led to what we now know as the auto industry. Everybody bit Ford's formula, including Barry Gordy's Motown Records, which duplicated Ford's method of mass production. Gordy made music to drive to, a strategic move that essentially put black music all over the country and eventually the world. Seminal black moments happen often in Detroit. Martin Luther King partnered with Aretha Franklin's family there to record records to help the civil rights movement. Because of its black population, Detroit has quietly been in the forefront of black issues. A few months ago, a good brother told me I should come out to a meeting, that I'd enjoy the speaker's talk. So I did. And I did. The thing that pulled me in was the relatability. That's because Detroit's black population is so dense that it lives the black experience in a much more concise way. The Flint water crisis is a perfect example. Project tenements all over the country mirror the damaged foundation of the Flint water system. Black and brown people fully understood the crisis nationally because we experienced it in some capacity locally. Just as I was pondering this idea, the speaker said, we live Bunchy Carter's life just like we do Scarface. In that moment, he was articulating what I was feeling. He was comparing the Miami crime boss to the Oakland revolutionary, which makes sense. Those are two sides of the same coin. Look at Malcolm X. He's both. That's when I knew I needed to get this brother to share some of these insights on Detroit and basically black life in general. What's your name and where are you? Uh, my name is Yusef Bunchy Shakur. I'm located in Black Detroit. Mm. What's the language of Black Detroit? Man, that's that's deep. 
I think the language of Black Detroit is reflective of it's Southern to some degree. Our grandparents and whatnot, you know, we, we are from the South, right? It's so, it's a soulful thing, you know. It's smooth, it's jazz, it's hip hop. It's, it's all those things in terms of, of how we rap with each other, uh, of taking one word and making it into another word. And one of the most popular words of Detroit is, you know, you know a Detroit guy or a woman because how we say, what up, though? Right, like, right. Like, that's, that's Detroit all day. Uh, what it be like? That's mm -hmm. that Southern thing, that Southern influence that we don't realize. I study hip hop and I noticed there's this heavy threat of violence in Detroit rap. And it's just my observation. And uh, right. I guess that Esham, D12, uh, Danny Brown, Slum Village, even even like Cassidy Romantic stuff, they still got a you know a couple <laughs> tracks where they talking about the blicker. Is Detroit rap the most violent? That's an uh, interesting question, man. I don't think it's no more violent than any other music. The violence that we hear in the music, and then particular violence that we hear in Detroit music, is a reflective of that culture, of the street culture, of the subculture, that is very as highly intertwined with each other, and it's hard to find the gray area. Let me let me switch lanes. Let me ask you this: uh, What do you think is is maybe the most underutilized resource in in black communities? I love for each other. I, repeat, I, I love for each other. I think at this stage of our of our place in America and our development, we have fake love with each other. Very few of us are really owning the spaces that we live in. Uh, very few of us are really working for ourselves. Like some of us admire each other from afar. Like, dude, I love what you're doing. Damn, I wish I could do what you're doing. And because we're in different spaces, it hasn't created a space of strategically sharing our vulnerability with each other because people may look at me and say man you doing it but i'm struggling i'm not saying people are fake but we're fake in the sense of how we interact with each other because we really don't know each other so we build the opportunity to authentically get to know each other you can respect me because now i know who you is you know who i am you touched on uh, the importance of opening and sharing those vulnerabilities. And I know, especially for black men, it's a, a constant struggle and balance. Last emergency might have been a year ago. And you said liberation comes through vulnerability. Can you unpack that a little? I mean, particularly black men, because of how our masculinity is shaped, when you're taught not to cry, when you're taught not to be soft, pretty much you're, you're being taught not to be vulnerable. And the word weak is presented to us as a negative. You tell me a human being who has not been weak is not a human being. You're denying yourself. So if I can't be vulnerable with you, then we cannot be brothers. Also, the vulnerability is cleansing ourselves, cleansing ourselves of the shame, of the pain, or, or whatever that is that's holding us down. I think in that, in that same time that I saw you speak, you said this other thing, you used the term social molestation. Mm -hmm. So as a, young, as a young boy, hanging with older men in, this, in my city, and I'm running behind them, and they're taking advantage of me. Mm -hmm. And again, and they're taking advantage of me in the sense of putting me at risk of, hey, man, you carry the gun. You go rob this guy. Hey, man, you go climb through the Because I'm trying to prove myself to them. But in, in reality, I'm being molested. The pain, the scars that, that, that have come out of this situation. So, mm -hmm. and so in my, in my reflection back of, of again, those of us directly or, or brothers or cousins or fathers, we see the scars, we see the pain. They've been so they've been socially molested by the environment. What would you like to see different in Detroit five years from now? 
Detroit is a very fractured city as a result of gentrification. And, you know, gentrification is not nothing new. So if we unpack that gentrification as a form of oppression. And oppression has always existed there. And we only can hear what, what, what we confront. And unfortunately for a lot of us, we're, we're afraid to confront that pain. I think it was, it was Dale Jones, the author, he's no longer with he's a, uh, he, he used to say in one of his books that confusion is the enemy of revolution, which meaning like the, our, our, our ability to not to understand what's going on lead to our ability to misplan and mis, misact within our community. That's boots on the ground. The details you can only learn from being in the trenches. I asked Bunchy Shakur for a book list because if you can't live and learn these things firsthand, at least you can read up on them and put them into action. Miseducation of the Negro by Carl G. Wilson. Fear Bakari, she has a book that's called The War Before. The Autobiography of Booker T. Washington. The Autobiography of uh, Frederick Douglass. Black Women in White America. A smart person learns from their own mistakes. A wise person learns from others. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, We'll chat a little more about the Detroit, and we'll see what time it is with my guy Dan Charnis. Give you a hint, it's still a time. Stay tuned for more of the P.E.P. Hey folks, my name is Bob Surratt. I'm a librarian and host of Listener's Advisory, the San Diego Public Library podcast. Listener's Advisory is the audio access point that connects users with SDPL services, facilities, and staff. Tune in twice monthly for a mixture of narrative-driven segments, in-depth interviews, and roundtable discussions about everything from professional recommendations to community-centric matters. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or at mysdpl.org forward slash listeners advisory. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. And now back to the PEP. We left off on a suggested book list from a real live revolutionary. This is a great place to segue because my next guest is an accomplished author. He's written for The Source magazine, which is regarded as the number one selling rap magazine in history. His best-selling book, The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip Hop, inspired VH1's movie, The Breaks. His newest book, Dilla Time, gives flowers to a Detroit beatmaker whose humble work ethic managed to move the needle on how rap sounds. The reason I wanted to talk to him is because he's such a good example of how Detroit art covers so much ground thusly impacting multiple places in the culture simultaneously. These jack-of-all-trades are, excuse the car pun, hitting on all cylinders. Who are you and what do you do? I'm Dan Charnas. I'm the author of uh, the book Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm. And I'm also a professor at the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU. I'm discussing Detroit and me and my friends always have this kind of sidebar discussion of our own with like Royce the Five Nine, Danny Brown, even Slum Village. When we talk about the different lyricists that come out, there's often a thread of violence in there. You know, you could say that pretty much for every locale in America. 
New York from the very beginning was gunplay. I mean, from Boogie Down Productions, you know, Criminal Minded, you know, my nine millimeter goes bang from Public Enemy who are extremely political. And yet, you know, they're my Uzi weighs a ton. In hip hop, that has always been a part of the oral wallpaper, but I don't think that it's special to Detroit, at least as somebody who's listened to much of the output of Detroit rap for the 1990s. I don't think it was any more or necessarily any less than LA or New York or Philly or Atlanta or Houston. It really is a reflection of you know, the number one, the particular male culture of hip hop. <laughs> um, and number two, the politics of living in a underserved, over-policed community. Mm, that's fair. Uh, I always try to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> just, I gotta, I just gotta ask personally, I know that you were working with Profile Records and Deaf American for a while. What's your best find? as an a or a talent scout with both of those labels? <laughs> well, look, man, I mean, I'm not saying I'm the greatest journalist in the world, but I'm a much better journalist than I ever was an A&R person. I mean, every artist I signed, I love. Chino XL and Quest the Mad Lad are two of the folks who I, you know, remain extremely close with today and whose genius is absolutely undisputed. I don't think I serve them well as an A&R person in terms of like getting, you know, getting them to situations where they could maximize their success all the time. I mean, I did my best, you know, I think my soul was more that of a producer. Producers work and craft projects, whereas an A&R person, they scout. And I wasn't much of a scout, <laughs> you know, I, I turned down a lot of great stuff um, simply because I just did not have the vision or the bandwidth, you know, to do it. So I found I found my place eventually. Can you mention one that you might have passed on? I passed on House of Pain because Paul Stewart brought it to me and then I, I like Jump Around. You know, it was, like, it was like three or four songs on there. There were, and um, I really like Jump Around, and I brought it to Rick, and I'm like, Rick, I really like Jump Around, um, but I don't know if they have anything else here, you know. Mm -hmm. And so we were kind of like sitting on the fence, and I didn't, you know, didn't really act on it. And then they signed a Tommy Boy. We were right. <laughs> they didn't really have more than one hit, but what a hit it was. You said you, you brought it to Rick. Who's Rick? Rick Rubin. Ah, what years were you working with, with Profile and Deaf American? From 1989 to 1991. And then I worked for Rick from 1991 to around 1997. That's often referred to as the golden era. Where was Detroit at that time? Well, Detroit was somewhat insular still at that time. Like, you know, in the mid 90s, it really was a very small scene. Um, first sort of centered around like a constellation of little nightclubs like St. Andrews, although I wouldn't call St. Andrews little, Alvin's, 
Um, there was a Chinese restaurant that Maurice Malone rented out or used uh, to promote, uh, I think it was a weekly party called Rhythm Kitchen. And then he got his own spot, the hip hop shop on the far west side of Detroit. And so all of the folks that we know who came out of 90s Detroit, you know, and the early 2000s came through the Rhythm Kitchen hip hop shop subculture. And JD was one of those people. Fat Cat was one of those people. Um, Eminem was one of those people. Royce was too. But really, like all we knew of Detroit, at least in the business, was like folks like Awesome Dre, who would come out, you know, in the late 80s, and Isham. JD was the first real lauded producer to come out of Detroit. Even then, I remember when Mike Ross, the owner of Delicious Vinyl, said we knew that, that Jay Swift was leaving the far side and Jay Swift was their incredible producer. And I was so concerned for the far side, like, what's the far side gonna do now that Jay Swift is gone? And Mike Ross said, oh, you know, no problem. Um, you know, we got this kid from Detroit named JD, you know, who's coming in to produce. And I said, Jay, who, Detroit? You know, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, my attitude was so coastal chauvinist at that point. I just couldn't imagine anybody coming from just I didn't wasn't even aware that there was a scene there and and still really wasn't aware that there was much of a scene other than Slum Village until Eminem started making the rounds uh, in the late 1990s. Got you. What inspired you to pin Dilla Time? It starts with my first trip to Detroit to work with Jay back in 99 when Chino Excel and I flew to Detroit and we recorded two songs with him. It was around that time that I started to really notice that he was creating something truly distinctive. As the years went by, you know, I started to hear his really what he would call a loud and offbeat rhythm start to permeate R&B and hip hop. And, you know, a few years later, he died. Around that time, I was writing my first book, The Big Payback. I, you know, I, I fell in love with a woman from Detroit, and I went to go, you know, meet her family for the first time in 2008, and we got married, um, you know, a year later. And then Detroit sort of became a second home. Around that time, I, I'm beginning to teach at NYU, and so the thought becomes, you know, between me and Jason King, who was the now the, the chair of the Clavis Institute. He's like, well, why don't you teach a Dilla class? Why don't you teach a class on Detroit since you have this Detroit connection? And I was like, you know, Amir should be teaching that. Questlove should be teaching that because he teaches here and be more appropriate for him to do it. But um, somebody named Jimmy Fallon hired Questlove, so he couldn't do it. <laughs> um, I said, you know what? I know enough people in Detroit now. I know some people in his family. I know some of his collaborators. Let's just do it. Like, let's just teach a class on Dilla. And part of that class was taking all 20 students on a field trip to Detroit from New York. And that was pretty special. You know, Ma Dukes was a part of that. And also I was very friendly with a lot of his friends too. So it was, I had a certain degree of access to his world that maybe another teacher wouldn't have had. But I was also super frustrated with the way that people wrote about his music or the way that people misinterpreted his music. You know, I really felt that he had done something quite revolutionary in rhythm that people had not put their finger on. And so that's when I just said, F it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to write a book about 
his musical genius, but I'm a reporter by nature. And so as I start reporting the book, that muscle starts to take over and it becomes a biography of Dilla, but not just a biography of him. It's a biography of the city. It's a biography of rhythm. Um, it's a biography in some ways of a community. Jay was part of a larger, a larger thing, not just a Detroit thing, but, uh, you know, obviously a music thing, an African-American thing, and, you know, a church thing. It's all important. Do you think Dilla's success is an extension of that Detroit Motown music legacy? Or is it something separate? He's absolutely a part of that Detroit continuum. And that's one of the things that I argue in, in Dilla time, for sure. What riveting and exciting things are you working on these days? <laughs> teaching. I'm teaching at Tish. That's what I'm doing. My full-time job teaching, teaching these kids uh, music history. You know, we are working towards uh, Dilla documentary, which will be executive produced by Questlove and directed by Joseph Patel. And, um, you know, always, always working on, on some new stuff. And we're here for all of it, Dan. Both my guests did this thing where they discuss how the topic relates to people in real time. And I'm wondering if maybe that's just a, a trait of Detroit, heart and soul, not in the, the cliche way of people loving each other or something like that. More, more along the lines of just being passionate, whether it's politics, education, music. Speaking of music, this is my disclaimer. If you're a Detroit rapper or a rap fan, no disrespect to your city or its rap lineage. This is just one rap fan throwing out some opinions and getting new ones. I'm talking about it to learn about it. Fair? With that said, I'm going to close the show with an exclusive track you can only hear here on the PEP. This is a wild combo. Detroit's Guilty Simpson and San Diego's Max Carnage. Detroit Rhymes, California Beats. This track is called Liberation, the Q Lazarus remix. Listen now and rewind it two times. Let's go. It's that fire. Hey, uh, Templeton Ride got me on five. What I put in the wind got me on ten. Where I'm from, we won't break or bend. Learn real quick who gon' sink or swim. They'll break all your limbs and take out the SIM card. Sip hard, liquor with my Timbs on. In the lab where I'm in songs. Where I write how I did wrong. I did a rip in the big bong. You hear the water bubble, riffraff brought all the trouble That fifth will take a quarter of you You're not whole when the block rolls I got flow so the stock rolls Chewing up like it's hot cold What I observe is optimal You're mad cause I got it though I got soul, we got it on lock mode Until the shop's closed What? You check me out, check me out, check me out, yeah Hit a clown in the crowd, set him down, yeah Kill the style, mow the town, get him down, yeah Get the crowd, get him loud, get him wild, yeah Check me out, check me what? out, check me out, yeah. Hit uh, a clown in the crowd, sit him down, yeah. You kill the style, mow the town, get him down, yeah. Get the crowd, get him live, get him live. Not yeah. another rap is hard. I'm a big job and not acknowledge others' parts with an honest regard for contribution. But I'm a mutant. Every time I drop some new shit, I'm laughing. I'm knowing never will flatten them. Know they can't rattle them. Approach the pressure with a coolness. Can play in dirt in a new fit top shape Rhyming in geometrics like a Euclid But you wouldn't understand that cause you're stupid The mic sounds nice and the time is right The shine is bright, it's diamond ice And y'all shouldn't try my type I'm a short fuse I beat your ass and pay the tab and court dues I walk through, step then I stomp through Boss moves, your rappers better watch who you're talking to 
Killing all the struggles that I fought through Thankful for the few Check me out, check me out, check me out, yeah Hit a clown in the crown, sit him down, yeah Kill the style, mow the town, get him down, yeah Get the crowd, get him loud, get him wild, yeah Check me out, check me out, check me out, yeah Hit a clown in the crown, sit him down, yeah Kill the style, mow the town, get him down, yeah Get the crowd, get him loud, get him wild, yeah Wild, yeah, wild, yeah Thanks for stopping in Parker Edison Project is produced and hosted by yours truly Parker Edison and the good people at Platform Collection Be sure to subscribe and catch the next episode on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any comments or questions, visit theparkeredisonproject.com and please, please leave a review so people can see what you think of the show. My guy Chris Reyes is our head editor. Adrian Villalobos is media production specialist. Lisa Jane Morissette is director of audio programming and operations. And John Decker is senior director of content development. This programming is made possible in part by the KPBS Explore Content Fund. And I love saying that because it reminds me of Sesame Street. Seriously, y'all stay safe out there. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.